Good morning. It's very good to be with you. Um, I want to welcome any guests who are joining online or here in the room with us. Um, many of you know that Pastor Tyler has been pretty sick with COVID, and so we want to thank you for your prayers for Tyler and his family. He let us know last night that he hopes to come home from the hospital today. Um, his wife, Rachel, has recovered well, and they both are very appreciative of your prayers. Um, so please continue to pray for the Groff family. They've got a move coming up, which is stressful even when everything goes smoothly. So keep them in your prayers. And uh, as delighted as I am always to be able to share the word with you, I'm vitally aware that it should be Tyler up here this morning preaching. And uh, with so many other things in the world that are not as they should be, I just wanted to start uh, by offering some prayers this morning. So bow with me. <clears throat> Lord God, you are good and you are in control. And we believe that and we rejoice in that. And we also ask that you help our unbelief when we look around and we don't feel that and it is hard to believe. We pray for Tyler that you would give him peace and rest and healing and get him home soon. And we pray for his family uh, during this hard season. We also think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who can't go to church, who can't have an open assembly where they proclaim your word. We think of the many who are having to flee their homes in fear of their lives. We think of our brothers and sisters in Haiti who are suffering loss of homes, loss of income, and loss of loved ones. Lord, be near, be near, and let your church Raise up and be the hands and feet of Jesus to these people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> uh, so last week I was getting in bed and Brandy and I were just kind of talking through our day and mid-sentence I just sort of stopped and I was staring at my hand and Brandy was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I'm not wearing my wedding ring. And I don't ever take my wedding ring off, so there wasn't like, oh, I put it by the sink or something like that. I had no idea where I lost it, when I lost it, but the last thing that I had done before going to bed was I was going around the house, gathering trash, dirty diapers, old food, all that stuff to put in the outside trash so I could wheel it down to the curb because the next day was trash day. So I got out of bed, rolled the trash can back up, thinking I might need to look through that thing. So the next day, obviously, I wanted to find it under the bed or in my office, or I wanted to call Panera, and they say, yeah, we had it, but no luck. So I knew I was going to have to go through the trash can, and I didn't have, uh, and by the way, you're all trying to look at my hand right now. I know that you are. So just, just listen to the story, okay? Um, <clears throat> So I couldn't uh, get to the tr outside trash 
during daylight hours where I could actually see until three days later. And as you know, it's been like in the 90s, got diapers, old food, all that stuff. It was not something that I was looking forward to. So I got on a mask and gloves and I went through every single bag and piece of trash in the garbage and the recycling. And to skip to what you really want to know, I found lots of maggots and lots of mold, but I did not find my wedding ring. In fact, this I found under my daughter's bed and it is like a rubber band or something. Um, <clears throat> but as I was searching for my ring, I thought of one of Jesus' parables from Luke 15 when he's describing what the kingdom of God is like. And this is what he says. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When we look at Jesus' parables, we know that they are symbolic, and so we naturally sort of pick out the different elements and try to figure out what they represent. And for the lost coin, it's fairly easy to realize that it represents um, a sinner. It represents um, someone who doesn't know Jesus. And when the coin is found, it symbolizes that beautiful moment when they repent and they believe in Jesus Christ. So there's rejoicing. But who is the woman in the story? Uh, I've always thought of her as kind of representing Jesus because the coins belong to her in the same way that Jesus is the good shepherd and the sheep belong to him. And we get this beautiful gospel image because the coin doesn't work its way to the woman or present itself to her. She goes to great lengths to find that lost coin in the same way that Jesus went to great lengths to find us. But as I sifted through old food and dirty diapers and I kept getting faked out by like Coke can tabs and stuff like that. Um, but as I sifted through it, I thought maybe, maybe we're the woman in this parable. Maybe we're the one looking for the lost because in John 20, after the resurrection, when Jesus appears to his disciples, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. And this is the gist of what I want you to know this morning. Every one of us who follows Jesus is sent. Just as the Father sent Jesus, now we are sent. We all have a purpose and a role in the kingdom of God and in his grand story of redemption. And we're sent in love to pursue those that are precious to God, the lost coins, the lost sheep, the lost wedding rings. And like searching for a lost coin or a lost wedding ring, it gets messy. And in order to find them, we have to go where they will be found. And we have to go. Last week, preach, uh, Pete preached from Ephesians 3 and got us thinking about what it means to be the church. What's the identity of the church? And today, I want to focus on the mission of the church. Essentially, um, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? And there are several ways that we can 
answer this from passages that would be correct, but I'm gonna go straight to Jesus' parting words to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. So read with me Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. This is what it says. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. So you've probably heard this passage. It's become known as the Great Commission. And there are several things that Jesus commissions his disciples to do. But for our purposes today, we're going to sum the mission of the church up in one word. And that word is go. The mission of the church is go. So the mission of the church is go. And I'm going to give you three points. And by the way, I hardly ever like give you a roadmap of here's my three points because that's not usually how I roll, but this is important enough, I want you to get where I'm going with this. So the three points that I'm gonna cover this morning is we won't go if we don't know, we won't go if we're afraid, and we won't go if we don't love. And uh, before we jump in, I wanna acknowledge from the get-go that there can be some confusion because I'm talking about the mission of the church, but you also hear us talk about missions. And so, I, which is plural, and I kind of want to differentiate between the two. Generally, missions involves missionaries leaving home and going to a faraway place, to a different culture, to tell people about the hope of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And this is a wonderful part of the mission of the church. And it's a wonderful part of who we are as Orangewood Church. At Orangewood, we have missions partners and key national leaders throughout the U.S. and all over the globe who have been sent out. And we have a missions festival every year so that you can hear about what God is doing through our missionaries and what God is doing through the local leaders and the churches that we partner with. We go on short-term missions trips to serve abroad alongside missionaries and key national partners. It is my sincere hope, I'm not just saying this, it is my sincere hope that every single one of you will be able to go on one of our short-term missions because it'll change your perspective and it'll change your heart. And I hope that you will radically support our missionaries and ministry partners who are going to every tribe, tongue, and nation. I hope that some of you feel the call of the Holy Spirit to radically go in the name of Jesus Christ where people desperately need it. But to differentiate, the call to missions is for some, but not most. But the mission of the church to go, this is for every single follower of Christ. And to go simply means to go to people who don't know Jesus. If we don't go to them, we'll stay safely in our little Christian ghettos where we're not challenged, and those who don't know Jesus will not meet him. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And by the way, that one little sentence is 
one of the greatest summaries of the gospel in scripture. But he goes on to say, how then will they call on him who they haven't believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? In the same way that you may hear the Great Commission and think it only pertains to missionaries, you may hear Paul talk about people being sent to preach and think, well, this is just talking about vocational ministry, preachers and pastors and things like that. But I want to argue that preaching here doesn't just mean the work of a preacher. It has to be contextualized because Paul's point is not the mode of communication. The point is that people don't hear about Jesus if there's no one telling them. That doesn't do much to my heart, but I wish that it did, that if we do not tell people about Jesus, they do not hear. That's why we should go. And the mission of going into the world isn't just for people in vocational ministry. In fact, Scripture says that it's quite the opposite. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. It says, And he gave, and the he here is God, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. In other words, these are offices of ministers in the church. He gave these to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Paul's saying that pastors and teachers and the people who we tend to think of as the professionals are here to equip the saints to go out and do ministry. In other words, my role as a pastor is to help you go and do ministry. I want you to think of the physical church as the household of the family of God. And uh, I know that there might be pushback and it's like, we are the church. I'm not arguing with that. We are the church. We are the family of God. But Orangewood exists in space and time. So I want you to think about this physical place as the house of the family of God. And if you think about what we do at houses, we rest there. We're fed there. We play there. It's a place that we can lounge in our PJs after a hard day. But we don't actually spend most of our waking hours there. Most of our time is spent outside of the house, at work, at school, at coffee shops, at the movies, at parks, interacting with people who aren't our family. And I realize if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, you might be thinking, yeah, I wish I was at the park or a coffee shop, but coming back to that. But in the same way, I want you to think that the church is a place for you to be with your family, to be fed, for you to rest, to have a place of sanctuary. Now I want you to think of pastors and your director of student ministry and director of children's ministry and people who work here at the church. Think of us as your stay-at-home moms and dads. We spend more time in the home but our goal is to nurture and raise God's children so that they're ready to leave the home. In fact, if you read that passage in Ephesians 4, as Paul goes on, he says that the role of these ministers is to help the saints, which is you. You have been made holy if you are in Christ. So saint isn't just like Mother Teresa. It's you, believers in Christ. 
It's to help saints mature so that we're no longer children. That's what parents do, right? So as brothers and sisters in the family of God, we're called not to stay safely in Christian community, but to go into the world to those who desperately need to hear the good news. So the first practical thing that I want to ask you to do is I, wanna, I want you to ask God where he wants you to go. Where does he want you to go? And chances are it's not some far off place. It's likely somewhere that you are already spending lots of time. But ask him to give you a burden for the precious lost coins that he would have you to seek. You won't go if you don't know that that call to go is for every believer. It's for everyone. You won't go if you don't know. And the second point is, we won't go if we're afraid. I've told you lots of stories about how I used to be in a touring band, blah, blah, blah. I always tell a story and people tease me like, oh, you're either gonna talk about your band or a cat. <laughs> and it's probably true. But uh, I have lots of stupid and embarrassing stories from touring, so here we go. One of our first tours where we'd ever gone out west, we were in the middle of nowhere in Oregon up in the mountains and we were at this gas station and it must have been the only one for like a, you know, miles and miles because I remember it was packed and it was super expensive gas. And while the rest of the band was inside like getting snacks and stuff, I was standing on this back deck that overlooked these mountains and it was gorgeous. And about 10 feet away from me, there was this like mountain man who, uh, he was like, he was wearing like coveralls and had like dirty hands and even his neck and face was kind of like dirty and he had like this long black hair and this really coarse long beard. So he looked awesome. Um, but he did not look like the kind of guy that you go start a conversation with. He looked more like the kind of guy that might punch you if you smiled at him or something like that. And so I'm standing here looking at these mountains and I am feeling like God's telling me I'm supposed to go tell this guy about Jesus. And wherever you think this story's going is probably not going there. I stood there, I, I literally have no guess how long I stood there because I was just having this internal conflict of like, I felt like God was telling me I was supposed to talk to him but there was not one part of me that felt naturally inclined to go talk to him about anything, let alone like try to have a conversation about faith. And I'd never done that sort of thing before where you just walk up to a stranger and eventually I hesitated for so long that he left and I missed my chance. So I'll come back to that in a minute, but I, I wanna highlight some of the ways that fear keeps us from embracing our mission to go by walking through a few things that were happening in my head and in my heart way back in Oregon. I was probably like 20, 21 at the time. Um, first of all, I was afraid I would make this guy mad. And probably to some degree, even if it's not a stranger, you've all been there. If it, it's someone you know, and they just feel sort of prickly and off limits, like you can talk to them, but don't try to have a substantial conversation about faith, because it's probably going to be awkward and just tick them off. And then attached to this is the fear of what people think of us. If I'm being honest, 
on my worst days, I probably care more what people think about me than what they think about Jesus because I desperately want to be liked. And so I don't want to do anything that might change the way someone thinks of me. So when I was standing next to this man, he didn't know me, so he couldn't like me, but I at least didn't want him to dislike me. So it was easier to say nothing to him because it it kept my uh, people-pleasing sensibilities intact. But we also tend to refrain from telling people what we know because we're scared we don't actually know that much, right? We're scared we don't know enough. I was in Oregon. This could have been, you know, some crazy atheist dude who's on his A-game with arguments, and he might have asked questions that stumped me and made me feel stupid. And so I rationalized, you know, I'm, I'm probably doing more harm than good if I try to talk to this guy, and I should probably just leave those kind of arguments to apologists and professors and things like that. Or maybe we do know enough, but we just don't know what it is that we should say. Maybe we're introverted and feel awkward. I remember standing at the gas station in Oregon, wrestling in my mind and thinking, I don't know what to say to him. I don't even know how to start a conversation with a stranger. And I had resolved, I'm just going to like go up to the guy and be like, Jesus loves you. (laughs) Like, I I was seriously, like, tensing my stomach muscles, just trying to get myself to do that, but I didn't. And 20 years later, I still remember a random mountain man in Oregon because of what I didn't say to him. I remember also because I left feeling ashamed. And I remember as a 20-year-old thinking God was ashamed of me And because I failed, he probably wasn't going to use me that day and maybe not even on that whole tour. And this highlights another fear, a fear of losing God's love and approval. That doesn't necessarily keep us from telling others about Jesus, but it is a really horrible motivation for doing it. So here's the thing. As I look back on that day at the gas station in Oregon, I can't honestly tell you if God was telling me to talk to that mountain man. I have no idea. Now I tend to think it was more that I had this idea that I had to do a bunch of things to keep in good standing with God. And Because it, it, it wasn't just that. It was like I had to read my Bible. I had to pray. I had to pray for so long and for so many people and I had to memorize this and read this and I felt like I had to check off all these things from a list every day just to keep God from being annoyed with me. But listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. And most of you have probably heard this, but don't tune out. And I want you to imagine what it would have been like for 20-year-old Mark to hear this in that moment at that gas station in Oregon. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's love for me, God's love for you, 
has never been contingent on something that you could do for him as if he needs you to do anything for him. God's love for me means that he raised me from death to life at the expense of his own son, and that was not my doing. He knew who he was getting when he bought us with the blood of Christ. So there was nothing that I could have done or failed to do that day in Oregon that could have made God love me any less. And that is the good news that people desperately need to hear. But many of us are reluctant to go fulfill the mission because we feel we're not up to the task. And at the heart of it, it's fear. But sharing the gospel can simply be telling the story of how you came to know Jesus and what he means to you. If God's family has a mission and a purpose to go and share the hope that we have with a world who needs it, wouldn't the enemy of God's family try to mess that up and confuse us? Satan's name means the accuser, and he will lie and tell us things that are true about ourselves that are not true. So Satan says, you're not enough. But Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Satan says, you don't know enough. But the Apostle Paul says, get this, we have the mind of Christ. Satan says, you don't know how to talk to people. But Jesus says, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. As I look back on that day in Oregon, I don't know if I was hearing from God, but I know that I was driven by fear. And I know that if I had tried to talk to that man, I would have been doing it for the wrong reasons. And that leads me to the last point. We won't go if we don't love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest command is in Matthew 22, he said, all of scripture depends on two commands, love God and love others. In the same way, our motivation for carrying out our mission to go is love. And we won't go if we don't love. We go first because we love God and we grasp just an inkling just an inkling of how much he loves us. But it's very difficult to share this love. It's very difficult to share the hope of the gospel in a winsome way with someone that you don't love. And yet, that's what I was trying to do in Oregon. I wasn't thinking about loving this guy. I was thinking about myself and my sense of duty and am I doing the right thing? I wasn't thinking at all about him. But we've all seen people do things in the name of the gospel that are done without love. We've all seen some Christian group put up a billboard or hand out flyers or hold signs that are targeted toward people that they think are scum. And I've never met someone said, you know, I never knew the love of Jesus until some Christians shouted in my face. I mean, God can do what he wants, right? But I've not heard that story. And we can all think uh, of 
a time that we've witnessed or maybe even participated in some conversation between a Christian and a non-Christian that it started as a conversation and then sort of morphed into a debate and then devolved into two people trying to make one another look and sound stupid. But I've never heard anyone say, I never knew the love of Jesus until I lost an argument and was made to feel foolish by a Christian. But almost every single story that I hear of someone becoming a disciple of Jesus begins with a Christian loving them well, bothering to get to know them, caring about them. And we all know that God can draw people to himself in really crazy ways. I know this guy who... As a teenager, all by himself in his bedroom, prayed the sinner's prayer. And he did it because like two years before that, he had gone to see Striper and they threw out yellow and black striped Bibles and he found it when he was cleaning his room and it had the sinner's prayer printed on the back of it. I kid you not, like that is some weird stuff. So God can, can do these miraculous versions of, uh, or conversions, but even when you hear those stories, usually when you get to know them, there was someone who was there all along, the sweet grandma who always prayed for them, or the, the owner of the hardware store who let him keep his job even after he shoplifted, or the neighbors down the street who always let her come over when her parents were fighting. Two weeks ago, I was talking with my barber, whose name is David, and he's a Christian, and he was telling me that he was in a conversation as he was cutting his neighbor's hair. And he's known his neighbor for years, but they've never had like super substantial conversation. But somehow God and scripture and things like that came up, but his neighbor just got kind of like awkward and shut down and eventually just said, well, I'm my own man and I don't need some book to tell me what to do. And he said it was like getting close to the end of the haircut and he didn't want it to end on this horrible note. And so... He was like, man, you know why I'm telling you this, right? And the neighbor was like, no. And I know inside he was just like, oh, he's going to make me say it. And he just kind of like punched him and went, I love you, bro. But when he did that, he said his neighbor's demeanor changed. And he said, I love you too. And when he left, he said, I'll think about it. And two days later, his neighbor texted him, because he had been thinking about it. I don't know the rest of the story yet, but I know that David earned the right to be heard by his neighbor because he loved his neighbor and his neighbor knew it. I'm not for a moment saying that we don't need to keep learning and studying apologetics and having a defense for our faith, but I am saying that those arguments and pieces of knowledge are just a resounding gong if we don't have love for God and we don't have love for the people that we're speaking to. So my second practical thing would be that I would ask you to ask God to give you a heart of compassion a heart of love for the lost, and especially the lost in your midst. Maybe they're the person that pushes your buttons the most, but ask God to give you a heart of love for them. If your motivation for sharing the gospel is anything other than love, it's misdirected and it's likely gonna leave you frustrated and possibly the person that you're trying to share it with. 
But when we share our love for God and our others and, and our love for others with people, it's we're doing what Jesus calls us to do by abiding in him. And he says, when you abide in me, you bear much fruit. But you don't always get to see the fruit, do you? I was talking to a friend recently who was telling me how he became a Christian, and he told me how when he was in his 20s, he was going through a really dark, depressive period. He had broken up with a girlfriend. He was estranged from his father. He was kind of aimless, and he was riding the bus home from work one night, and he got off at the wrong stop and ended up having to walk down the street by a college campus. And while he's walking, he sees this group of like college age kids and he could tell that they were Christians because they all had the same shirt on that had a Bible verse on it or something like that. And he said, they just seemed, he was saying this kind of like sarcastically. He's like, they just seemed happy and full of joy. And he said, there was part of me that really wanted that. And then he said, and there was part of me that wanted to go fight him. But he ended up talking to him. And you gotta understand, this guy's a tattoo artist and he's walking down the street at midnight. It's not somebody that you would naturally just walk up and engage, but these kids did. And they started talking to my friend and it wasn't long before he was telling them everything that was wrong in his life. And they said, can we pray with you? And they did. And he started crying. It was the first time anyone had ever prayed with him. That was the beginning of his relationship with Jesus. And it started because a few people who didn't even know him but bothered to care engaged with him. And the craziest thing is I asked him if he's still in touch with any of them. It turns out this entire group of kids was just visiting from out of state. He never saw them again. In fact, they invited him to church that Sunday, a church that they weren't even gonna be at, and he went. So this side of heaven, those kids, who probably aren't kids anymore, may never know that they changed a man's life that night. But because they abided in Christ and followed the call to go, even on the street at midnight, there was rejoicing in heaven, and they bore much fruit. So to recap what we've talked about, our mission as the church is to go to go where the lost will be found. And we run the risk of being driven either by fear, which is a very poor motivator, or being driven by fear and it prevents us from even going at all. But love, love for Jesus and love for the lost is the best motivator. When I lost my wedding ring, I, uh, it was embarrassing even as I was doing it, but I texted the other pastors and some of my close friends and said, look, I know it's just a hunk of metal, but will you pray? Because my ring isn't worth a lot, but to me it's priceless. And even though I didn't find my wedding ring in the trash, um, I was glad that I looked because if I hadn't, I would have always wondered, what if? What if I just looked a little harder what if I'd gone to the messiest place? And I was able to tell Brandy, I think I tried everything. And side note, if you're wondering, Brandy has been super gracious. I've probably been beating myself up more about this than Brandy has. She's like, we can get you another ring, no big deal. 
But I'm convinced that most of the things we regret in life are not things that we failed at, but it's the things that we are too afraid to try. And I don't want any of us to look back on our lives and think, I wish I had tried. I wish I had risked. I wish I had searched. So in closing, I just want to share two passages with you to give you some peace and some hope as you go. And by the way, that, uh, that word go in the Great Commission, many Greek scholars think that it, it's better translated as you go, which is saying as you go about your life, here's the things that you should be doing. So as you go, here's some hope. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we simply abide in Christ and walk in them. And the Spirit of God, which lives in your heart, will lead us where we should go. And this is profound. And it's also like, If you really start to think about it, it's one of those like, I can't wrap my head around it things because it's like, does this mean that we could choose not to walk in them? And and the answer to that would be a whole sermon or a whole sermon series because this is that mysterious place where God's sovereignty and human responsibility meet. And I'll be honest with you, there, there are people, you could go to Bright Light Books and find the fattest book with the guy or gal with the most letters behind their name who wrote everything that they possibly could say about this divine mystery, and they still don't really get it. Like, none of us really get it. It's like uh, my friend Brian in Nashville, we always talk about how we think the most magical thing in the world is vinyl records, because it's like, how does this little black circle made of vinyl that has scratches on it sound like Led Zeppelin. And, and like when I say that, people be like, well, you got to understand the science behind it because like the vibrate. I'm like, no, 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 no. You can explain it, but man, that's magic. You don't get that. Like you don't get why this sounds like music. That's weird, right? And it's the same thing with this. So don't get caught up on what we don't know, but take comfort in what we do know that our very creation is working in our favor and we can't mess that up. And I want to close by reading the Great Commission again in its full context. So we're going to start in verse 16. This is what it says. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I just want to stop there. Have you ever noticed that verse? As they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And it doesn't say why they doubted or what they doubted. Was it the same people? Are they worshiping and doubting at the same time? I think so, because that's us. We believe that we have this mission, and yet when we're in the moment, we're like, this is weird. That's a mountain man. I'm in Oregon. He could kill me. This doesn't make sense, right? But in the midst of this, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And that therefore means, in light of this, go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to focus on what Jesus told them before and after he gave them their mission. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. We are not waiting for a king. We have a king who is on the throne. His reign and his rule doesn't look the way it will in the great day of the Lord. But we have a king now who has all authority. Nothing is left to chance. We're not waiting for a king. And though he calls us to go to do things that are scary and to do things that are messy, to do things with no promise that it'll end like we would want it to, he promises, he promises that we'll never have to do it alone. The beauty of all of this, most of what I've been talking about, we think this is something we do individually, but there's reality that you are never alone because Jesus is always with you. And where you go, the spirit of the living God goes with you. And there's also a reality that we can't do this alone. We need to come back together and remind one another of what's true But you know now that you're to go and seek the lost. And you know that you don't have to be afraid because you're never alone. And there are good works that were created along with you and you just have to walk with them. And Jesus will never leave you. So you don't have to go in fear. You can go in love. Jesus is always with you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your love. That when we were dead, when we could do nothing for you, when we were enemies, you loved us and called us from death to life. Lord, we have been set free from slavery to sin And you have sent us to seek after the lost and the enslaved. And there are days that we walk by people in chains with no thought of them, with no love for them. But Lord, would you show us where we're to go? Would you give us love for the people that you're sending us to? And may we never have to look back and wonder what if. We pray all of these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen.